0: Secret That's what I'm looking for. I have spent the whole entire week trying to work out this time difference between Florida and Melbourne. I know it's a 16 hour time difference, but I'm mathematically challenged and I find it very hard to calculate what 16 hours ahead of Florida Eastern time is. Anyway, it's The Secret Golf podcast and I'm Diane Knox. Thank you for being here. And it's President's Cup week. There's been such a build up to this President's Cup with Tiger Woods being the captain of the US team and Ernie Ells captaining the international team on a course where he was actually part of the internationals only President's Cup victory, Royal Melbourne. Um, I'm just so excited to see this golf course. It really is one of the greatest in the world. I mean, without doubt, the greatest golf course in Australia. And we spent some time with Jason Duffner this week who said that It's his favourite out of all the courses he's ever played, and he's played a lot. (laughs) Talking of Jason Duffner, we have a President's Cup preview with Elk and Duff, and it's out as a podcast right now. You can find it on iTunes, on Spotify, on all the other podcast apps and sites. Just go and search for that, and it's amazing. Duffner is, like, one of the best people to talk to, especially about a big event like this, and he talks about his... President's Cup appearance in 2013. Also, who he thinks is the best player in the world that nobody really knows about. And the only clue I'll give you right now is he's on the international team. So you can go and listen to that podcast. Elk and Duff were actually down in West Palm Beach. And Jason was testing some new Cobra drivers. So Elk went down and they spent a couple of days together um, testing out the clubs and doing some work on his game. So we have loads of content, video content coming from that really soon. On this podcast today, um, I'm going to talk to Michael Clayton who is a professional golfer, played on the European Tour and the Australian Tour. He lives in Melbourne and he's actually at the course. So he's going to be our correspondent, giving us an insight into the conditions, how it's going to play this week. I mean, really just everything there is to know about Royal Melbourne and uh, the build-up to the President's Cup, which gets underway in just a couple of hours. And, well, I alluded to it in the beginning, but 1998 was the only victory the internationals have ever had over the US team and our very own Steve Elkington was a fundamental part of it playing alongside Greg Norman they were the force to be reckoned with and Elk got four points for the team it was a runaway victory 20 and a half to 11 and a half and I mean he's talked to me about it before but people often forget is, well, maybe a little bit overshadowed because he's won the PGA Championship and the players twice and many other accolades. But being on that President's Cup team is very, very important for Elk. Huge moment in his career. And, um, well, of course, we had to talk about it. Captain by Peter Thompson, which I guess makes it emotional. But Elk, with all this talk of the President's Cup and seeing Royal Melbourne and, you know, all the memories of 98, it's got to be emotional for you.
1: (laughs) It has to be emotional because it's the only one we won out of all the President's Cups so far. Ernie Ells was able to tie one in South Africa. But yeah, we had a tremendous week um, at the President's Cup. My mum and dad were down there, my coach, all the people from my hometown in Wagga Wagga made the trip (laughs) down to Melbourne to watch us play the 98 President's Cups and... You know, it was... We had Peter Thompson, the famous Peter Thompson, was the captain of our team, and Jack Nicholas was the captain of their team, and it was, it was great.
0: Well, we're going to talk about the 98 massacre in Melbourne in just a little while. <laughs> but first of all, I mean... So the teams are in Melbourne now. We've got, of course, the American team headed by Tiger Woods against the international team captained by Ernie Ells. And there's always controversy heading into these team events. We always have it with the Ryder Cup. Maybe controversy is the wrong word. In this case, it is, but... You know, there's always something that, um, I guess, can fuel the fire and really fuel that competition between the two teams. And Patrick Reed offered it up on a plate at the Hero World Challenge last week in the Bahamas. So I'm sure everyone has seen the video now when he was in the sand. He moved the sand before he took the shot behind the ball and got a two-stroke penalty. What, what do you make of it?
1: Well, if it wasn't the President's Cup week, you know, that the tour season would close off and we'd all come back in January out in Hawaii and this would be long, long in the past. But I think Patrick Reed, you know, has really affected his team because as you can imagine, you know, it's pretty embarrassing for you to be in a team room and looking at Patrick Reed, knowing that he's on your team and now Tiger Woods has to weigh a new circumstance which is who do I pair Patrick Reed with yeah. in case the Australian public uh, and the boys get on the drink down there and start, you know, yelling at Patrick Reed or they're working him over a little bit when he gets into the bunker? Who do I have to pick that can handle playing with Patrick Reed? It's not—it's no longer a sort of a uh, hit and giggle friendly match, right? Mm-hmm. It's now all of a sudden like I've got to get a point if I'm Tiger, I got to get a point, How, you know. Why should these other players representing their country be subjected to, you know, heckling from the Australian Australian crown?
0: Yeah, and Mark Leishman, who is the secret golf guy, who's going to be playing in the Presidents Cup, of course, back on home soil and representing the international team. But he said that the whole Patrick Reed thing has provided pretty good ammo for the fans that are going to be out in Melbourne because they're vocal fans.
1: Yeah, it could affect him for sure. Um, the Australian. Team or in this case the Presidents Cup team. Look, Diane, they're going to have to be so they're going to have to play so well this week. Um, the early forecast is it's going to be a little cooler and a little windy at Royal Melbourne, and the greens are going to be super super fast. Of mm-hmm. course, we'll be playing short because we've had a huge drought in Australia. Um, and um, I just think that it the whole the whole thing's changed. I mean. When we were there, and I know we are going to talk about '98, you know, we were favoured to lose by a mile. In fact, yeah. the great Jimmy, my friend, great Jimmy Roberts, told everyone that on paper that we didn't have a chance to win the Presidents Cup, and of course we we finished up saying that we weren't the best on paper, but we were the best on grass that week. So I remember uh, Jimmy Roberts doing an interview after day one when we whitewashed the Americans, and Greg Norman stood there and poured a whole, I think a whole glass a whole bottle of beer over the top of Jimmy Roberts' head and he had no he had he couldn't do anything but just sit there and take it it was pretty uh, it was pretty pretty funny
0: and you mentioned Ernie Ells because he was on that team in 1998 and he's the captain this year being back at Royal Melbourne and him motivating his team he is going to have the best motivation to get that international team fired up
1: yes and the question becomes: Does does Tiger Woods sit? Patrick Reed he was a captain's choice anyway. Does he sit him in the locker room until Sunday, and adds no fuel to the fire, or does he put him out in front and um, you know get get you know whatever's coming to him he has to take it? And uh, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with Tiger, but I'm sure Tiger's going to go to him and say, "Look, mate, you bought this on yourself." Um, you're going to have to go out and wear whatever they bring at you. And uh, you better come back in here with a point because uh, Mm -hmm. you've sort of semi-disrupted this team. I don't know. It'd be very hard for me to watch what Patrick Reed has done on the camera. Obviously, he thought he was going to get away with it. He's done it before. And um, it's it's embarrassing, to be honest with you. And then he he made it worse by saying, made a BS uh, comment about it. And, of course, you know, he got caught red-handed and, that was that.
0: And he's such a controversial figure when it comes to these team events anyway. I feel like at every Ryder Cup, there's always a Patrick Reed controversy. And um, I mean, last year we saw it with the whole Jordan Spieth thing, didn't particularly want to be paired with Reed. So as you say, it could be an option for him to sit out until uh, the Sunday singles.
1: It'd be a smart move by Tiger if he wanted to defuse the situation. He's got Plenty of top players on his team. Tiger Woods has a great team. He's obviously um, can play uh, as well. Um, you know, outside, it's always hard, Diane, when you think of outside, when I say the president's cup of, I sort of think, okay, so Cam Smith, uh, Jason, uh, Mark Leishman, um, Adam Scott, they all really experienced at Royal Melbourne. And what does it mean to be really experienced at Royal Melbourne? It's like, Sort of like playing at Augusta. It's like the more you've played there, the better you're going to play it because you know not to be here, you know not to be there. And what happened to the American team at in '98? Um, Diane was they were loaded also, um, but the wind got super windy. And um, give you an example. um I think it's the. Of course, everyone knows there's a east and a west course at Royal Melbourne, and they do a sort of a combination for the tournament. So I'm going to say it was about the fourth hole of the tournament. It was a par three. Which Greg Norman and I were partners that week and the wind was just whipping along um, only about 130 yards and Greg, it was an alternate shot and Greg Norman came over and said what are, you, what are you thinking? And I said mate I think it's one of those little sort of chip six signs over there about 30 yards to the right of the green and let the wind bring it back and let it land over the front and run up. He goes yeah that's what I was thinking and uh, he hit this beautiful little six iron from about 130 and onto the green and, and then Jim Furyk and John Houston were partners and Jack Nicklaus was there and of course those guys have plenty of experience but they didn't have any experience that day with that wind and uh, I think John Houston hit an eight iron up in the air and the wind got it and Diane I'm not joking by the time the ball finished it bounced back down the hill it only finished like 10 feet in front of him it was a little uphill pass <laughs> it went 10 yards so it landed way up there, but then rolled all the way back. Yeah. So it was they were so out of sorts, and uh, we were able to keep, keep the pressure on them. And we had a lot of guys play well that week, including Craig, Craig Parry and Shigeki Mariyama, who were out first, uh, that won five points.
0: You talk about the fact that knowledge plays such a fundamental role when navigating your way around Royal Melbourne and the strategy. Greg Norman, who you mentioned there, he was your playing partner. He had won the Australian Open twice at Royal Melbourne before that President's Cup. So, I mean... The Australians on the team it was fully loaded with Peter Thompson being the captain, Wayne Grady, Greg, you, Stuart appleby, Craig Paddy, so you had a lot of that knowledge there of playing that sandbelt golf
1: it was a, It was a combination of the sandbelt course, and then when the Australian wind came up, it's like you know it's like playing against a bunch of Scottish people <laughs> in Scotland, yeah. you know when the, when it's windy. it's like how do you beat Sam Torrance around you know a a real windy Scottish links course. It's it's just really hard to do. Mm -hmm. And um, to give you a sort of a mindset, Diane, about what it was like for us, um, our first match out on the first day was, uh, we sent the New Zealanders out, Frank Nobolo and Greg Turner. And for those people that don't even remember Greg Turner, everybody knows who Frank Nobolo is, but Greg Turner's brother was one of the greatest cricketers in New Zealand history. And he comes from a real sporting family. And they were put up against David... Uh, David Duval, who was the current number one player and I said, th- do, you know, do, you, do you know who his partner was in, mm-hmm. in match one?
0: Yeah, it was Mark Omida. so Duval was third in the world at that time and I think Tiger was number one in the world O'Meara was number two so you, the Americans put out their big guns early
1: Two and three and, and when we saw the draw um, in typical Australian fashion in the, in, the, in the club room, in the team room we said, oh well look uh, we were telling Frank and Greg Turner, New Zealanders, we we said, look, these guys are going to thrash you guys. Are so you guys going to be back here in like two hours? He said, so we started writing our lunch orders up on the board so that they could cook, cook lunch for us. Cause they, cause we told them they were going to get beat by six and five. And, and of course this was all fueled by Jimmy Roberts, who was our, who's our great friend, by the way, hope he listens to this telling us that uh, Duval and, uh, and uh, Amira were going to absolutely thrash these two Kiwis. And, Diane, I don't know if you know this or not, but when you tell Kiwis they can't do something, they're like they're like a bulldog nipping at a nipping at a sheep's heel, mate. They they never give up. Anyway, the word comes back that they had rolled over those two guys. Our Kiwis had beat them about five and four. Or was there a was there a Do you have a result on that match? Was it close or they I beat do. them pretty good? I think.
0: Hang on two seconds. I've got it right in front of me. Um, they were one up.
1: Okay, so they closed them out one up at the end. And I, I'm not sure they were so impressed with the one-up or that they didn't have to cook lunch for everyone else. And there was a big to, I-told-you-so moment. And, Diane, that set the tone for that, that week. Um, they just upset the biggest team on that American squad right at of the gate. And literally, it was just a collapsing of dominoes right behind it. everyone. I mean, it was almost too embarrassing for the American team. We almost won the match before we went to the singles. So... Um, I'm sure you have in front of you all the results, but and that was that was that was how the week started.
0: Well, it's funny because talking about that very first match, Frank Nobolo made like a forty foot pat on the first hole. And the dynamic between the Australians and the Kiwis is always an interesting one. It's kind of like the Scottish and the English, isn't it? But when they made that pat on the first, the crowd went crazy and they were behind them the whole way. And then Nobolo had to make another forty footer on the 18th so by that point I mean everyone is so fired up and of course backing that international team and their hot start yeah and I think we had
1: about an hour bus ride on the way home that first day and of course a lot of people are familiar with the Haka yeah I know I know in Scotland you know what the Haka is they do it on the yeah it's a rugby thing before every yeah Yeah, where they they, um, conjure up all the gods and all the New Zealand uh, you know and they do this famous dance. Well, Greg Turner and Frank Nobolo did it in the bus on the way home, <laughs> Diane, with their shirts off. And I'm, I'm still, I'm still not over that. When I saw Greg Turner without his shirt off, so um, it, <laughs> when you talk about team team chemistry, we had it, uh, we had it there, and we were also mourning the fact that, if you recall, on a, on the opposite side of that spectrum. I don't know if you remember when Stuart Appleby's wife, wife was suddenly killed in London yeah. with a car accident, and we had, the, um, we had the golfing angel on our hat. So that was mm-hmm. his first time that he'd come back to play. So it was a very emotional week for our team.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we'll go back and we'll talk about the golf shortly. You're in the airport, by the way, just in case everyone's thinking, what is that noise in the background? And we'll talk about why yep. you're in the airport in a little while. But, um, yeah, we'll talk about the golf soon, but going back to the bus there's a great Frank Nobolo quote where he said that he was talking about you and he said that you were what a corner man is to a boxer and that you got everyone fired up on the team bus
1: well you know you got to do what you got to do Diane <laughs> when you're when you're when you're a local boy I'm from yeah. Wagga Wagga which is not too far from from where the golf is uh, about a 4 hours so you know some of the young guys on the team, Mariama from Japan, we put him with Craig Parry and we told, that was back when Mariama had an interpreter before he spoke English any good, and we had a deal with him that he had to do anything that Craig Parry told him to do. If he had to go to the, go to the toilet and, and stay there for two hours, then he had to do that. That was the rule. We, and we were telling the interpreter, everyone was weighing in on uh, this poor interpreter telling Mariama what he had to do that Craig Parry told him to. It was It was something else.
0: That's funny. I I did see that, um, yeah, because Mariama did say that Craig Parry was like, he just guided him through the whole thing all week. And they were playing together, as you said. But Mariama kind of came out as the hero of the team. What did you call him? Was it the smiling assassin or something?
1: Yeah, I mean, Mariama was, you know, he's such a likable guy. And then Craig Parry, see, there's certain players when you go to Australia, there's certain players that become almost unbeatable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Craig Parry comes to mind, um, of course, because he hits so straight and, um, he puts so good and it sort of nullifies, uh, a lot of the strengths that some of the long hitters have, you know, and playing in Melbourne golf is, um, you know, it's a, oof, it's, and you'll hear in the, on this podcast from, from Michael Clayton, who's a great friend of mine played the tour forever a golf architect he'll he'll be able to fill you in why Melbourne is so difficult and so interesting to play. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, looking at the teams, I mean, the final score, it was 20.5 to 11.5. So it was a thrashing. As you have said, we creamed them. That quote has become pretty famous now. But... The U.S. team, all 12 of them had won on the PGA Tour that year. And they were dubbed the mightiest team that had ever assembled. Now, a lot of the research I've done, it's almost like people were making excuses for what went wrong with the American team. But, you know, the international team, the stars just aligned for you guys. You were very prepared. As you said, you had the knowledge of Royal Melbourne on your side as well. But you guys just went out and played incredible golf all week.
1: Well, yeah. In my case, uh, I was with Greg Norman, the greatest you know golfing icon that was down there. We had the greatest icon uh, in Australian golf history, Peter Thompson, was the captain. And <laughs> if you're lucky enough ever to get paired with Greg Norman in Australia, you um, have no idea what it was like in the late in the in the 80s and the 90s. The the popularity of him and what it was like to be in that group with him and the electricity with the Great White Shark and um, I was just a side note i just was a i was just a, a playing really well side note at the time, diane um, and I think we were undefeated too, so uh it was we were it was great it was great fun playing with him.
0: You can't really call yourself a side note when you gave the team four points throughout the course of the week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well we finished up playing Davis Love and Freddy Couples in a really big match on Saturday. Um they were the undefeated sort of World Cup golf champions and it was um the press at that point were trying to point to something that would would be interesting because it's, it, it appeared that the, the 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 team the team victory for the US was out of reach and um you know we had the prime minister of Australia that was there the president of the United States was on the tee when we went to the tee on Saturday afternoon to play that match and I'm not I'm not exaggerating. There was probably twenty thousand people with sharks on top of their heads and elk horns on top of their heads and it was yelling and screaming and um, I think Greg and I put together a, one of the best rounds we've ever played together to shoot about fifteen or sixteen under through seventeen holes to beat Freddie and Davis barely by I think two and one. So it was one of the great matches ever and it was it was just it we were just shaking our heads how how um just how how things were going so right for the for that team our team that week it was um not sure if I can put my finger on whether it was the captaincy of Peter Thompson by coming in and telling us to not get too excited about the lead and we can still lose this and and putting together the the pairings of course back then tomo um He told everyone on the team, Diane, that he didn't want any input from anyone. He didn't need anything. He didn't need weather reports. He didn't have anyone, any assistance and all that. He just said, I'm going to put the team together and you boys are going to go out and you're going to bring me back some points. And it was real refreshing. It was very simple, very simple plan.
0: Well, you were talking about that match uh, that you and Greg had against Davis and Freddie. And that was the final, I think it was the final match on the Saturday. And at that point, at the end of the day... 14.5 points for the international team compared to 5.5 for the US team. So going into the Sunday singles, I mean, how do you stop yourself getting completely carried away at that point? You were playing against uh, Lee Jansen on the Sunday.
1: Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, it was going to be a foregone conclusion. Um, But, you know, you have to do your deal, go out there. And I think the the hardest part was we knew that someone up front was going to close it out. I think, was it uh, Nick Price that closes it out that day? Or, or
0: um, I think he was first off on the off Sunday. And, uh, on the Craig Sunday. Parry was first off. Nick Price was second. But Parry was against Justin Leonard. He won. And then Nick Price beat David um, Duval. He was the second match.
1: I think it was close to right there that it was closed out. And, yeah. And um, they couldn't win. And, and the hard part was we all wanted to run in and have a party. And... Uh, I remember, you know how you know how fit Greg Norman is. I remember we were walking in, and Greg Norman took his shirt off. And oh. of course, he's built, built like uh, you know, got a great physique. And I mean, probably a hundred Australians ripping the shirt to pieces. So they had a little piece of history. No. <laughs> and they were yelling, yelling me take my shirt off. I said no, nah, I'm not taking my shirt off. I'm taking my shirt home. That's amazing. I'm not going to stand next to Greg Norman with my shirt off.
0: And he still does it because I follow him on Instagram, and he posts all these like topless workout things on his Instagram, and I'm like, "Geez, how old is Greg Norman got, now? How old is he?"
1: He's in his sixties. We tell him, we tell him he takes his shirt off in the in the uh, grocery line just to, you know, just if anyone's around, you know, that's what we tell him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the americans tiger came out and said that they weren't ready to play in 98 that the season had finished with the tour championship the beginning of november and then this was of course what the second week of december a lot of them just hadn't played and he said that the americans were just not ready to play what do you think about that
1: well that's their fault right i mean if you if you're not ready to play when greg jack nicholas is your captain then you you certainly aren't ready to play right but it was really hot that week, and uh, the Americans coming out of uh, you know winter, so to speak, over here, uh, it was it was a big change, Diane. It was uh, it was the heat was a factor for them. The crowds were a factor. The golf course certainly was a factor, and then then you know the pressure of uh, sort of getting behind early and the big wind at Royal Melbourne, and sort of the uh, the uh, the whole thought of not being able to climb back with, on that course with that wind with that much momentum against you it was a Look, we've been on the other side of this coin for a lot of times, but I hate to sit here and, and say how, how uh, I would like to see the boys somehow uh, recreate that. I keep telling our guys that we're undefeated at this, at this course, but certainly that was, uh, that was our week, Diane. Mm-hmm.
0: Obviously, you've won a major in the PGA Championship. You've won the Players' Championship twice. Being part of this winning International President's Cup team, how does that compare to the other two?
1: Well, I still remember so well um that week, you know, I've sort of blacked out all the ones we lost. Uh you know, uh all the other places I don't have as me- as fondly memories, although I still remember all of our, our teammates and everything. It's just just you know, winning a major was great. Um winning the Australian Open at at my you know, in Australia with my mom and dad and my nana was there, that was great. Mm. Uh winning the University of Houston national championships with all those guys was great. And um don't really remember the ceremonies very much at the end. Diane, you always remember what happened during the week that makes you remember the uh, victories, you know, and there was so much, um, there was just so much good momentum in our team room that week. And people say, well, how do you get that? How do you, you know, how do you recreate that? And that's going to be Ernie else's challenge this week is to, and, and, you know, Patrick Reed may have helped him. He may have hurt. I mean, Tiger playing for Tiger Woods has got to be a ball, um, you know, he's a bit of a jokester, and he's got a lot of young guys on his team. His uh, Tigers agent, um, Steinberg, is agent for a, a bunch of other guys like Gary Woodland and uh, JT. Um, so, you know, there's a lot. They know Those guys know one another really well. Um, but this, is, this, is, this has kind of put a little uh, quietness on their team room, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's very unusual unusual circumstance. I mean, Reid did something worse than the two-shot penalty. Um, and uh, it's going to cost him uh, it's going to cost him, I don't know what it's going to cost him, but it's going to cost him a lot.
0: The funny thing is we were talking about the fact that the fans are going to give him a hard time, and of course they are. But the other thing is like his fellow golfers that are on his team, they have to be pretty disgusted with his behaviour too.
1: Well, that's the thing. How do you... How do you stand in front of him and, and get all get all fired up together down there when you know what just happened? Uh, Cameron Smith from Australia said on, the present, on our team said that you know I got nothing against Patrick Reed, but said he he cheated and um, he got caught and uh, he's a Masters champion and he shouldn't you know shouldn't be doing that. So you know what could happen down there. I mean the Australian crowd. Diane they're pretty they're pretty they're pretty brutal <laughs> they have, they're pretty brutal and if he gets it in the bunker I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of them run over there and go we got to watch this guy somebody get a camera on him quick hurry up
0: and uh, I don't think that's going to sit too
1: well so we'll just have to see
0: so what about Royal Melbourne being such an incredible course everyone refers to it as being the sand belt of Australia what does that mean
1: uh, I would I'm going to defer to my friend Michael Clayton, who will be on this podcast with me. But the, the sandbelt is a is a is a very thin track of land that's from a ocean that was in the middle of Australia millions of years ago, and it drained out through through the state of Victoria. And it's only about a half mile wide. This this track of sand, and uh, it's like a from the sky, it looks like a river. And uh, all the courses are, are are all situated through the sand belt. Basically, Diane, if you were took a shovel and dug down it's just pure sand It's all it is and um the turf the turf can you know get its roots down in there and, and just grab on and then that it they can literally carve any shape hole any sort of severe slope on the greens and it's able to stay and it's, it's magnificent it's just one of the great um you know great places that golf courses have been built they're they're all they're scattered all the way along there i mean alistair mckenzie the great designer did that one he did kingston heath he did victoria there's metropolitan there's about 10 in a row that that are just all all that good but royal um is the one that's hosted all the major championships in australia and it's so iconic everyone like when you think of augusta you know what hole you know the holes on royal Melbourne when you see them so it's uh it's great
0: as you say, Michael Clayton on this podcast as well, and he's going to give us a real in-depth description of the course. But Royal Melbourne really, on paper, doesn't favour the aggressive player, does it? It'll be
1: it'll it'll be dependent on the weather, and the weather's supposed to be cool this week, and the greens are literally frightening. I mean, when when you hear stories at Augusta, where we haven't heard that many stories recently at Augusta that I can remember where the Greens are that frightening. But Royal can be Royal can be like putt off the green putt off the green frightening. So mm-hmm. um it depends where you hit your ball. Um you know, the American team will have to scramble over there and get their get their bearings and find out how to play this course. But if the wind changes, which it can, you know, Melbourne's the most unpredictable weather place of all time. Um it's so tricky leishman should do well cam smith should do well if adam scott can putt at all he'll do really well because he knows how to play it um you know some of our other players on the team will have to get used to it. has been there he had a good week last week finished second in the australian open adam scott missed a cut he's not putting well so that's a bit of a worry if i'm mm-hmm. else so as the week goes along i um you know, I'll be able to handicap this a lot better and I'll have to tune in and listen to what Clayton says because it'll, what Clayton tells you, because he lives there, will be absolutely what's going to happen during the week.
0: Okay. And well, he'll probably tell you who
1: can win and why.
0: Well, Mark Leishman finishing T10 at the Australian Open last week. That's got to be a, an enormous boost for him.
1: Leish is uh, the consummate Aussie golfer. It's the low fade, good putter, tall, nothing, nothing worries him too much. He, uh, he he'll be he'll be ready. He said he's I read a quote recently that uh you know he's been over there for about a month, so he uh he said he's treating this like a major. Just gotta get at least a good partner. I don't I think he's gonna be hard to beat.
0: Who would you team him with?
1: Him and Cam Smith I think finished second in the World Cup at uh-huh. all, Melbourne. Yeah, they so did. I would yeah, you know, I would think that uh I would be running those two out until something broke.
0: Right, well, let's talk about why you're at the airport because we keep hearing the little lady doing her announcements in the background. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's, it's Monday of Presidents' Cup week, as you know, and I'm headed down to Florida to meet my friend Jason Duffner, Secret Golf Zone. He is doing some testing with the uh, new Cobra equipment, so and he's been on the Presidents' Cup team, so I'm going to get him Diane in to <clears throat> tell us what he thinks about match play and, and how these guys should be thinking about winning one of these president's cup matches. Cause I read this morning on secret golf's Twitter account that he was three Oh, and one in his president's cup uh, yeah. record.
0: I think that this is just a cool way for people to see just how secret golf works and the fact that, you know, Duff is going to be testing new drivers down there and he wants to do a little bit of work on his putting, but you're going to go and work with him and it's just cool I think for people to see that dynamic of how you work with our team.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of experience and, you know, I don't as you know, I don't uh you know, I don't talk too much about players unless they ask me to, but, you know, I uh I've seen I've seen a lot of stuff and um you know, most of these guys die and they get themselves a little too comp- complicated in their thinking and I like to I'm I'm thinking and this week a lot about Peter Thompson who's past won five British opens and, and, and I'm it I'm it trying to think a little bit point. more on how simple he kept it for us at the uh, President's Cup in ninety eight. I'm, I'm kinda of channeling that my thinking this week of how simple he made the game and what was important to him that to um, practice and what wasn't.
0: Mm-hmm. very inspiring yeah it definitely is and um, there's obviously going to be some emotion around the President's Cup this week as well honouring Peter Thompson and of course remembering the incredible victory that he led in 1998
1: yep Tomo was the best as his nickname and and his uh, his licence plate on his car was five times that was his licence plate <laughs> down there that was, that was his nickname in Australia five times so, <laughs> I was uh, going
0: to say it sounds like a very Australian thing
1: <laughs> yeah well, hey, there's only been a couple of guys that won the British Open five times, so uh, Tomo was great. And um uh, I remember I'll leave one one I'll leave this podcast with one um Peter Thompson uh quote or or talking point and we were in one of those team meetings and, and uh Tomo would say uh you know, we'd have a thirty six hole match that day in the President's Cup and Frank Dombolo put his hand up and said, Tomo, mate, he says, What happens if uh I go out in the morning and I play terrible and um, we should be repairing, like get me off the team under the bench or someone else needs to be playing good. They need to jump in. And Tomo looked at Frank and he said, Frank, he said some of the best golf I've ever played in my life was after I just came off the golf course when I played crap. So he said, if you come out in the morning and play crap, I expect you to play great in the afternoon. So if I tell you to get on the team, you're on the team. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So that was the way Tomo thought.
0: Again, keep it simple.
1: Keep it simple.
0: All the stories from Elk are always good to hear, especially around such an important event and a huge win for the international team in 1998, their only win in the President's Cup. But are we going to have a repeat performance on Australian soil this year? Well, we're going to find out. So, Michael Clayton on this podcast as well. He played on the Australian Tour from 81 to 2007. What a run. Won seven times. Also played on the European Tour from 1982 to 2000 and uh, was a winner there as well. He's from Melbourne. He's a golf course architect. And before I spoke to him, Elk said, oh, Diane, by the way, he knows more about everything in golf than anyone I've ever talked to. He said, you can throw anything at him and he'll tell you dates and who won and holes and everything. So he is going to be our expert on Royal Melbourne. He's in Australia and, uh, well, the phone signal cuts out a little bit here and there. But you should be fine. You should be able to understand what he's saying. So had to get Clates, as he's affectionately known, on the phone. And, uh, well, the first thing I want to talk about is everyone refers to the sand belt when they talk about golf in this part of Australia and specifically Royal Melbourne. So what is the sand belt?
2: Well, in the pocket of land in the southeast of the city, that was um, every club moved there. All, they all had courses somewhere else. They all moved down there. So the land was cheap. It was um, out of the city quite a bit. It was farmland. And it was mostly flat, except for Royal Melbourne and the back of Victoria. Um, so it was partly the sort of land it was built on. But more than that, it was kind of the style of courses they built. So they built these sort of unique-looking big sand space bunkers and Cut right into the greens, and so every course has got you know the bungling is all exactly the same, pretty much. I mean, yeah, you, know, you, know, you can't distinguish a bungling at one from another, generally. And because it was sandy you and know, obviously hot, the greens are always pretty hard and pretty fast, so mm-hmm. it's a sort of style of golf as much as the geography of it. But it's all sort of southeast of the city, so Northern Melbourne's probably 40 minutes from the city, okay.
0: So, yeah, because Elk was telling me that, you know, it, on that land, if you were just to dig down and down, it, it's just sand that's underneath you.
2: Well, mostly. It's not kind of entirely true. I mean, everyone thinks that, but <laughs> there are parts of the sand belt that aren't sand. It's actually going it be quite heavy clay and parts of it. But, yeah, but, but mostly it's sand. So rural Melbourne is almost all sand underneath it. But there are parts of Metropolitan and Hain and Yarra Yarra that aren't that are all sand but yeah, mm-hmm. generally it's a, you know, a, a better sand that's perfect for building up
0: So you're from Melbourne and you're very familiar with the course you've been out to see it this week which we're going to talk about but what does Royal Melbourne symbolise in Australian golf?
2: Well it's the best course in the country it's um, it's always you know it's always one of the whole. Big tournament, so it's, you know, it's never been a place reluctant to open its doors. You know, it's a very, it's kind of the blue blood club in town. So, so it's a, you know, it's a snobby club at all, but you know, it's a very, it's a club that, um, you know, lots of people want to join for reasons other than the golf course. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a place to be a member, <laughs> um, and. You know, it's one of the best courses in the world. So so it's, um, you know, people who don't play golf in Australia have no concept of how great it is or how important it is in terms of place the world of golf. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, a friend of mine, who's a sociology professor at La Trobe University, once, he said, there are only two man-made things in Australia of any mm-hmm. worldwide architectural significance, the Opera House in Sydney and the... Uh, Royal Melbourne.
0: Oh, really? It's not true, really. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, so, so as I said, people who don't play golf have no concept of how great it is or how important it is, or in the world of golf.
0: It's a Mackenzie course, and with Mackenzie being a Scot, would you go as far as to say it's kind of like the the St Andrews of Australia?
2: In more oh. ways than one. Yeah. You know, it's it's the golf course, and and it's you know, he tried to. On a much different side, he tried to recreate the same sort of golf, really. So, wide fairways is where you had to figure out for yourself where to go. He didn't tell you how to play the golf course, you had to work it out yourself. And that's, I think, the, the most abiding principle of St. Andrews is that every shot you've got to work out for yourself how to play it. You know, the golf course and the, the, the architects not telling you how to play the golf course,
0: you've got to figure it out yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Dr Alistair McKenzie, of course, as we mentioned, being the designer, and he's the brains behind Augusta, Cypress Point, Crystal Downs, um, La Hinge, actually, in Ireland, where the Irish Open was held earlier this year. But what similarities would you say there are between, well, let's look at Augusta National and Royal Melbourne?
2: Well, right, to start with, so he gave you freedom off the tee to hit the ball into a big space. And if you hit it away from the perfect place to come into the green from, it gave you a chance to play the shot. Because you weren't in rough. You weren't hacking the ball out of the rough. You always had a... As long as you kept it within the confines of the fairway, you always had a great lie, You had a much different angle to play from. So if you were out of place, you had to play... Either a great shot to get back in a position on the green, or you hit the ball a long way from the flag, and then you had a brutal putt. Mm-hmm. So, so three putting became the challenge in, in terms of avoiding it, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, wide well, fairways, bunkers cut up against the greens, and great sets of greens. You would say that you can make the argument that the, the greens at Augusta and the greens at Royal Melbourne. Are, the two best sets of greens in golf really. I mean they're amazing greens that when you get a long way from the flag the putting's incredibly difficult. So you know both of course are difficult in the wind until you know, the wind kinda of swirls around and once once the wind's blowing the golf gets really much more difficult and complicated. Mm-hmm. But um and, and until Augusta started planting trees on holes like 11 and 17, and you know, the trees were a long way away from the golf. They weren't really a part of the golf so much. It was lot, lot, you weren't very often playing out of the trees. So both of them were tree-lined golf courses, but without the trees really being in play much. Mm-hmm.
0: What's your weather been like there over the past couple of months? It's summertime for you now, so the weather is going to have an impact on the, the course and the conditions, but how's it been lately?
2: Typical Melbourne. Monday was 40 degrees and so hundred over 140 yeah. degrees with a hot north wind, but people who don't live in Melbourne can't understand the weather here because it's so crazy, but... Yeah. Um, always when you get that day late in the afternoon there's always a storm and the wind changes and comes from the south and it rains which it did so it went from being 40 degrees on Monday to about um, 20 degrees on Tuesday okay. so it quite, it was actually quite cold yesterday morning okay. so the weather's kind of variable as um, hasn't been much rain so the you. When it does rain, little Melbourne, the greens don't change that much. They're still pretty hard. Mm-hmm. So, but it's pretty typical Melbourne weather, kind of hot and cold. We had a crazy kind of hot week in early November. We had friends out from England who couldn't believe how warm it was. It was like 30 degrees. And we, wow. They went back home and the next week it was raining and cold. So weather
0: kind of crazy. <laughs> Sounds very similar to Scottish weather, but we never get it anywhere near 40. <laughs> no, yeah. We'll compare it to like uh, 25 and 15 maybe. But, yeah. Yeah. I saw a video actually of, um, of the Greens this week and it was, I think it was one of the golf journalists that's out there covering the President's Cup and they were bouncing the ball on the Green and you could see that, I mean, there wasn't a single dent. The Greens are so firm, but are you saying that they're kind of like that all the time?
2: Yeah, I played with a friend of mine earlier in the year who said, and he wasn't joking, he said, I haven't fixed a pitch mark here in seven years. <laughs> so the people who haven't seen the golf course, you can't imagine how greens can be that hard to the ball. You don't even look. You, know, you, you don't even, once you play about three holes, you do not even looking for a pitch mark. You don't bother to fix anything. Wow. Because you can't even see where the ball lands, mostly. Gosh. That's unbelievable. So, they're they're incredibly hard mm-hmm. and fast and um, yeah. you know before, the Americans didn't play on Monday but the spring's been crazy on Monday they, they were they were kind of a little tamer yesterday but um, and it doesn't look like it's going to be incredibly hot this week so they won't be crazy but that will certainly be the hardest and fastest the the 24 guys play this year.
0: So, at Royal Melbourne, there's the East Course and the West Course. So, what do they do for the President's Cup? Do they, like, merge the two together?
2: Yeah, they play 12 on the West and 6 on the East. So, they did that because the first big tournament they had was 60 years ago. It was the 1959 Canada Cup, which was changed into the World Cup. And they did it because you didn't have to cross the roads. So, on the on the west course, down the east course, you've got a crossroads to go to the other paddocks on the golf oh, course. Right. So they did it to keep it within the confines of the main paddock, really. But um, the 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 six holes they play on the the, the west course is the better golf course. Uh, the six holes on the east are, are mm. better than the holes they replace. So mm. the composite course is. Mm-hmm not significantly better than the West course but it's definitely a better golf course by including the six holes on the East course
0: So I know you went out and you walked the course yesterday so apart from all the characteristics that we've talked about, what did you really see yesterday that maybe caught your eye or is going to be something that's going to be an important factor for the guys to contend with?
2: Well it's greater than normal it's kind of juiced the greens up a little bit but hopefully they'll be a little browner by the weekend but Kind of an odd colour, which I suspect is more the well, certainly more the influence of the pj tool than the club superintendent, who can't imagine is loving the the, the greenness of it. But, um, you know, Um so that was really the only noticeable thing was, was that the greens were greener than normal. And because it's been dry the, the contrast between that the green of the fairways, and the burned-off brown rust looks amazing. Okay. So, you know, there is no, unlike American championship golf, there's no long green grass here. Australians never play golf out of on their best course. You never play out of long green grass. You can play out of long, wispy brown grass, but in terms of what Americans are used to, we have no sort of the U.S. Open rust that becomes so common. Yeah, you know, In America, it's just, uh, it's the most different sort of golf once you get off the fairway. And, and, and very random sort of lies. There's no uniformity or, or, or consistency to the lies in the rough. You can get a great lie or a terrible lie. Mm-hmm. And what the fire is getting. It's a much different golf when you get off the fairway.
0: Mm-hmm. What are your favourite holes on the course?
2: Um, <laughs> because, because someone asked me, well, I don't have to, I have that all 18. Uh, no, I think, well, early on there's, there's a great run of holes uh, Two, well, the first is a tricky little short pass forward and green away, but two, three, four and five is a great run of golf. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a par five the second with a blind drive up over the hill then a beautiful shot down by green. Three is the great par three probably the best par three in Australia. And four is a egg hard dog to the right with the, the, the most treacherous green on the course. And the fifth is a great little short after a par three. And then the next hole, seven, sorry, six, is a beautiful drivable short par four. So early on, you get an incredible run of holes. Really. Mm-hmm. So, so. And then nine is a great sort of dog dog left, long par four, dog left. So... They're probably the best holes, but it's an amazing course. I was talking to John Huggins yesterday, another Scottish journalist, and he wrote a piece about, Tom Doak wrote about Pine Valley in the latest, well, Top 100 list where he said every hole at Pine Valley would be the best hole on 99% of courses in the world. Wow. It almost said the same about Royal Melbourne. Yeah. Pretty much uh, sort certainly of, sort that. Of, Probably thirteen holes at Royal Melbourne would be the best hole on every course in Australia. Mm-hmm.
0: So, from what you're saying and from what I know about the course, it's and um, it's very similar to Augusta in the sense that smart, strategic play is really going to be rewarded here, and that's something that's even more exciting to watch when it is a team event like this, and strategy is so important.
2: Well, especially in four where you know if you're partners hit a good shot then you can take on more than you would take on in a singles match mm-hmm. uh, so four balls are fun at Royal Melbourne for that reason uh, foursomes is kind of tricky out with only one ball and then so hard did the ball close to the hole at Royal Melbourne you've got a great shot to get it within a, to a gimme part really so in singles even if your opponents sort of you know, hit it. Well, 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 your opponent really hits the ball so close to the hole that they force you to play a shot you wouldn't otherwise play. You know, if you're playing in a match and someone's you're playing, set the ball at three feet, then you kind of have to go at a shot because you know, there isn't any point in getting it 30 feet away and two-putting and losing the hole. Yeah. So, greens that are the less firm force players to take on shots they wouldn't otherwise play, but that doesn't happen so much at Royal Melbourne because it's so hard to get the ball close. Mm-hmm. so you don't see so much kind of really reckless play you know it's, you know, it's always measured and sensible really mm-hmm. does that make any sense
0: yeah I mean that's exactly what I was just about to ask is that with the Greens being so firm the bounce factor is going to be something that is going to be vitally important when approaching the Greens this week
2: yeah you you, you, know, you get the more close you've got to land it you don't just hit the more the flag and stop it you've got to judge where you landed and how the ball going to run. So you know, lots of times you're landing the ball 30 and 40 feet away from the hole and then using the bounce and the slope to try and get the ball to the hole. Mm-hmm. So it's not much different golf than just, you know, for example, we saw Madonna this year where we was just hitting a splat. You, you know, you've, got to, you've got to figure out where you want the ball to land to get the ball to run to the hole. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's a lot like Augusta. And When you're going to that last mm-hmm. saying you're playing I eighteen, or gas to win the pins in the back there, you've got to try and bounce the ball up that tier to get it back there. Mm-hmm. If you've got some sort of long side of the green so there's lots of that sort of golf at all I, I know
0: it is. And we were talking about sandbelt golf and you were saying that there's a lot of bunkers around the greens, like kind of tight bunkers there. What, how important is good bunker play going to be here? And how much of an advantage will Australian players, and we're talking about Leishman, Cam Smith and Adam Scott, how much of an advantage will they have when it comes to playing from the sand?
2: We'll all have sand because the sand's kind of inconsistent you know every line's not the same there's no attempt to make them consistent so you can get shots out of bunkers where the sand is quite deep and shots where it's quite thin so they'll probably understand that a little better um all Australians do, but, well, certainly all Australians play in Melbourne a really good bunker place because the bunkers are really difficult mm-hmm. um there's almost never any scenes between the green and the bunker so there's no, okay. so, you know, even a great bunker but there's not that yeah. one or two foot scenes of softer grass to land on to kind of kill a short, difficult shot. So um, and, and and there's shots that you can't get up and down really. Yeah. If you hit it in the back bunker at yeah. um, four or five you just trying to get the ball in the green really. Mm-hmm. So you, you don't see. I mean, my guess is that if the up and down percentage on a PJ is out of sand is like 40 or 50 or 60 percent, I'm not sure what it is. If you come to Royal Melbourne, it, it, my guess is it would drop to somewhere around 30 or 40 percent, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So it's much more difficult to get the ball up and down. Mm-hmm. One, cause the greens are hard too because the monkeys are deep because you get so many difficult short shots. You know you might only be 20 foot from the hole, but you're in a deep bunk and you've got to get up and stop it. So it's, there are lots of difficult shots. That, and the bunkers you can't go in and get up and down. There you know, are sort of six or eight shots around the golf course where if you go in the bunker, you can't really save apart part unless you make it from 20 feet. So in that sense, it's, you, know, you don't see that very often in pre-golf. Mm-hmm.
0: So well, we know from what you were saying that the course is firm. It's going to play long. Who does that favor? Because with the strategic approach you have to take, it doesn't sound like Royal Melbourne favors the long aggressive player.
2: No, it favors um, well. No, it favors guys who are thinking about what they're doing. Who understand the golf course. Who you know, as silly as it sounds, who just hit. The shots they need to hit. So it's played the guys who are playing the best, really. So Mm -hmm. whichever team plays the best golf will win. Adam knows, of course, well, so he always plays it really well. Leesman's played it a lot. Mm -hmm. Hamilton hasn't played it so much. He's from Queensland, so he probably hasn't played Royal Melbourne that much. Um, I mean, Tiger always plays great golf at Royal Melbourne. Seve was the master there. I mean, Seve was a, that course was built for him. Mm-hmm. It gave him space. He hit those beautiful high line lines. So when he was out of position, he was good enough and smart enough to, well, he was smart enough to know which shots to take on, and which not to, and good enough to hit them. So if you're looking at a player that the, the course was built for, Seve, Seve was that guy. Mm-hmm. He was. I, I watched him play a lot at Royal Melbourne. He was a genius around there. It's because he had the great short game, he hit the ball high and shot across the buck as if he was out of place, and it gave him space to play off the tee. So, so Tiger, is I mean, although he's driving the ball way better now than he was a few years ago, he, he's the he's a he's a kind of the great Royal Melbourne player in the modern era, really. So, so mm-hmm. you know, he, it would be no surprise if the course favours the guy like Tiger. And and the other guy who played Royal Melbourne was Ernie. Ernie's obviously not playing, but he's got the course the record around there. So, uh, you know, something about playing the golf course well.
0: And Ernie has the memories of '98, when, of course, the international team got their only victory they've ever had in the President's Cup. But, you know, those memories for him being back at Royal Melbourne. His team, they're going to want to hear all of those stories and use that really to, to fuel their fire and get them going.
2: Yeah, well, that was um, that was the captain. He was lucky. He had Peter Thompson with his captain and Elk was in that team, Steve yeah. Oxford, and, um At the opening ceremony, he said, it's such an honor to play against it. such a great American team and guys are such great players, and it's you know, so great for us to be able to play against them. So he probably was a master deflecting the pressure. He just put all the pressure on the Americans who were. Uh, it didn't really show up that week. I mean, no. the next time they came back, they were way better. Mm-hmm. 2011, they played much better goal. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this week kind of depends on which American team shows up. If it's not in it's the international winner, but 2011, it's going to be a much closer contest. Mm-hmm.
0: And it was, but, um, a, it was Tiger in 98 that said, you know, we just weren't prepared, we weren't ready for this. So
2: Yeah, they weren't, and they got smacked. Exactly. Wasn't even close. Yeah, so when they came around the next time, they were much better prepared. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and he's gonna remember that Tiger never will. likes to lose, <laughs> no, no. so he's gonna remember that for sure. Um, obviously you're Australian, and uh, you know it's difficult to ask at this point, but how do you think it's stacked between the U.S. team and the international team this year?
2: Well, I think the Americans, when like look at the rankings they're better there. You know, they're, they're formidable players. I mean, they're incredible. So you would think that they would be... Well, they're clearly the so favourites and you would think they would win, but they didn't know how much play? And, you know, I watched some, I was playing in Europe when... The, I was there when they won the Ryder Cup in 85, but, and every year since, the American team always looks better. They always look better than the European team. And, you know, at this point, they hardly ever win. So... You know, it's, it's hard to pick, but clearly you know, the Americans are the favourites by a long way. after mm-hmm. Johnson and Thomas and Tiger, You know, those guys play their best golf. They're you know, incredibly difficult to beat. And of course, yeah, like, I heard what Sam Brandle said about the Patrick Lee thing yesterday. So, you know, that he's, you know that's a something they've got to deal with. And the fans aren't going to, you know, it won't be in New York. They won't be all over them like right? they would be in New York. but. Mm-hmm they'll give him a humorous but hard time I think I mean it's that, you know, they're not going to bore his fans or you know, just you know, you know bash him but there'll be some humorous kind of stuff that won't well, be very easy to take for Patrick Reid I don't think mm-hmm. so they've got to deal with that Yeah,
0: and we saw um, we saw Justin Thomas even make a bit of a joke of it when him and uh, Patrick were out playing a practice round together so maybe, I mean, we were, I was talking to Elk about it. Maybe Tiger's kind of saying to them, hey guys, we need to turn this in. We need to make light of it. We need to try and like diffuse the situation and, and maybe make a bit of a joke out of it.
2: Well, no, that's my mind. not hard deal with yeah. it, but, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean it, it'll be some, it'll be quite funny to see how the crowds react. I mean, it was, yeah. When Patrick Reid got to the first TSA, some got the other on the T. Patrick the excavator. Yeah, so, so, yeah, uh, it, it won't be as bad as people think, but it'll be interesting to see how it all plays mm-hmm. out.
0: So, what are you going to be doing out there this week?
2: I'm writing for Golf Australia's website. So, Golf Australia is our partner of the USGA, so okay. I'll write a kind of a daily column for them. And I'm just watching. So, um it's a, it's always a fun place to watch. You you can pick a couple of really interesting holes to watch. The short part four, six is always a great hole to watch to see where the guys go for the green or how they play that hole. So yeah. You know, and the other yeah. thing that's interesting for me is how you know how the golf course is gonna play in terms of the length. I mean it was a it was a formerly long golf course that won't play that long up in the moon goes pretty far. Yeah, you know, it's crazy how the ball goes. So, so it's always interesting to see how Royal Melbourne is handling the, you know, you know, the modern game. Because unlike Augusta, we don't have the resources or the space to go and buy up roads and houses and knock them over and move tees back. So uh, it's interesting to see how the golf course plays, really. Okay. In terms of, you know, just in terms of what clubs they hit, you know, holes that were formerly kind of medium and long, par fours that reduced to much less now. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be the most interesting thing for me, really.
0: Okay, good. Right, Michael, thank you so much. That was an incredible insight into the course, and uh, I guess all that's left to do now is uh, watch the drama unfold.
2: Okay, thanks. So. That was a great fun. Thank you.
0: Michael Clayton there. And before that, Steve Elkington talking about the 1998 victory for the international team. So we have one of the secret golfers representing the internationals, Australians' own Mark Leishman, who's actually playing day one, match one, teamed up with Joaquin Neiman and going against Tiger Woods and Justin Thomas. Elk did say that he thought Tiger strategy was going to be just to, like go hard from the front end and put out the big players. And, you know, Tiger didn't pick himself to sit and watch. (laughs) So he's out first. And, um, yeah, we'll be supporting Mark Leishman, obviously. Looking forward to seeing that. But um, yeah, also this week, it's the QBE shootout at Tiburon Golf Club in Naples, Florida. Last year, it was won by Brian Harmon and Patton Kazire. So they're teaming up again this year to try and defend. JT Poston and Jason Kokrak playing as another secret golf team. And Ryan Palmer in the field as well. So we're going to be following along with that on all of our secret golf social media. But send us a little message. um, Who do you think is going to win the President's Cup this year? I mean, everyone has said it, that on paper, the US team definitely looks the strongest. But with this course and it playing so firm and fast and not really being a course where you can just smack it off the tee, a lot of strategy involved, a lot of precision, a lot of patience. So hopefully it's pretty level heading into the weekend, especially heading into the singles in the final day. That's what I would like to see. But yeah, if you're on Twitter, facebook instagram we're just secret golf so send us a little message and um, yeah thank you very much for listening to our podcast don't forget we have the other one with jason duffner and elk doing the big president's cup preview definitely worth a listen and uh, we'll be back with another one next week